could see them immediately like become smaller and ask me the same question they all eventually ask me what are you doing here are you killing yourself with this if you're making that much outside like what is the point of you being here and i'm like oh i'm here for experience and they're like screw the experience go out there focus on that I see the walls before me, I feel the cages forming, seems like the world is falling, but I keep my head off the ground. I see the world before me, I know what change is coming, I hear the world is calling, so I keep my head off the ground. We break into everything. We break into everything. Hello and welcome to the Barrier Breakers Corner where we shift mindsets around various topics such as family, finance, relationships, dreams and visions and most importantly opportunities and how to walk into them. We want to annihilate the assumption that we cannot break barriers. Let me tell you this today. There is more on the other side of you breaking that barrier that you would never know unless you do. Welcome to the Barabaker's Corner, where we step out on faith and defy the odds. I am your host, Joy Stonecorn. Today, we have our Barabaker of the month of April 2021, and he's none other than Akudo Agoki. Please introduce yourself. My name is Akudo Agoki. You've already said it. I am a chef, and at the moment, I'm also the creative director for NTX Media. I cook food. <laughs> What I'm known for is more my combination of different cultural foods, spices, and different techniques. And I like to play around in trying out new things and getting people from different culture to experience like things they're familiar with, but in a new way. I think that's what the major thing that people who've had my food or had my service know me for. Did you ever desire to be a chef? No. The way it came on was out of the blue, to be honest. I used to speak to my dad and we had like my entire life planned out. And the end goal was to get a job at World Bank. So I had my degree in financial economics. I had all these internships in various prestigious places in government, House of Parliament in Canada. So that was the direction we were going towards. Like, yeah, let's top the economics chart and get there. When I started to cook at all, it was 2007. And it was literally just so I don't die because I was alone in Canada. I think I was 16 at the time. I had no family in the country. I was there in school. I had just got into university. And so I survived on McDonald's for a while. And then I was like, okay, I can't keep doing this. One, I'm getting tired of it. Two, I'm running out of money. So I'm like, I need to learn how to make something. So I rang up my mom. And the reason why I rang up my mom was because she was the first person I blamed for me knowing how to cook. Simply because I'm the only boy in my family. My parents have four children, three girls, one boy. And my mom would always say to me growing up, like kitchen is no place for a man. If she wanted me to do a job, I would be assigned jobs like, you know, go clean the compound, go wash my car. So stuff she thought were fitting for a man to do. But then aside from that, I really didn't get a lot of choice because I grew up a mommy's boy. So she just sort of sport me silly. I got what I want when I wanted it. So I blamed her when I couldn't cook. And I said, I rang up and I said, hey, listen, I'm alone in this place. I have no idea how to cook or what to do. You got to help me out. 
And so she would teach me over the phone, like, okay, look for chicken, buy chicken, buy this. Actually, one of the first things I learned how to do was just cook chicken. It wasn't even a recipe. It was just cook the chicken. That's what she used to say, like, just cook the chicken. And from, from there, we'd make stew or we'd use the stock to do something. First couple of tries obviously went disastrous, which if I look back on it now, I just wondered to myself, like, how did I destroy just literally chicken? Because she said, okay, you know what? We'll go the easy route. She was like, water, onions salt and just stock cubes and I'm like how did I just have four ingredients and still manage to like did you overboil it or something well first one was too salty and then the second one was um, she told me to let it boil for about 20 to 30 minutes so I took it literally like regardless of the intensity of the flame let it go for 20 to 30 minutes so I put it on this high flame for like 20 minutes chicken got burnt and so we had like three amazing disasters before I eventually like got it right but then from then on, it was just, it was literally survival tactic. Just cook so I could eat and just survive. And then aside that, I just sort of did my thing. I think where the spark was lit up was when I finally made one recipe right, which was stew. Bear in mind, like, I think I failed stew like 10 times before I got it right. So one day I took it to uni as well. And a couple of my friends tried it. And then they were like, oh, you made this. Like, this is really nice. This is good. And then for some reason, I just felt very happy from that. Like, wow, like someone's actually complimenting my cooking. Like, I thought this guy was going to taste it. And I was just expecting the usual male banter. Like, man, oh boy, stay out the kitchen, man. But they liked it. And I think from there, I got really excited about it. I didn't think at that point in time, like, yeah, I want to be a chef. I think if they had not liked it, that would have been the end of it for me. Like, I would have just accepted, I just do it, stay alive. Yeah, if they didn't like it, it would have been that. But they did. So what that did was it made me comfortable with cooking. It made me feel like, yeah, you know what? If I fail, I'll try again. And then it stayed at that for four years. I was just comfortable with cooking then, like comfortable with learning recipes. And that was all it was. I never saw anything else. And then later on, I moved back to the UK to be with family. In between then and the four, and when I came back, I was in a relationship with my ex and she used to cook for me. So she didn't know how to cook as well because we started dating in high school. But she learned so that she could make stuff for me. But then I was more amazed, like, wow, like we started at the same place. You've learned to make all of these recipes. Like I'd like to learn to make it as well. So I like watch what she used to do. And I used to learn it because I used to feel like as a man, I don't want to wait to see my girlfriend before I eat good food. Like I should be able to just go in the kitchen and make stuff for myself. Like the idea of just a man waiting for a woman to just feed him. I just thought that's nonsense. So I used to watch her and learn, but she hated it. She felt very traditional. Like, oh, I'm your woman. I should cook for you. Like you shouldn't be in the kitchen. So she came at me with the same attitude. My mom came with that. You shouldn't be in the kitchen. Relax. Let me do it. But I felt like, no, I want to learn. And then I used to just watch her and learn. And eventually I would pick it up. I think that's where my skills in food decided to develop because I would just watch and I would just pick it up. And sometimes I would miss something she was doing, but I would just take like calculative measures. Like, I don't think it would have been this because the way this smells and tastes, it doesn't seem like it. So that's where I started to develop like tiny little skills that helped me decipher how to make a recipe good. And then I got better than her at doing it. 
and she absolutely hated it. <laughs> so I didn't used to cook when she was around, just so she wouldn't be upset by it. But then she would leave, then I would cook, and I'd try it. So she didn't like the fact that I got better at it. When I moved back to the UK, I used to cook for my sisters to a point where there were certain items where my mom would make stuff for us. And my sister would be like, they couldn't do it next time. Like they wanted me to make it next time because they preferred my version. But then it was like, I think a few Nigerian recipes that I knew, that was all it was. As I became more and more comfortable with cooking and with food, and I became more comfortable with the fact that, like for instance, I got so good at understanding like how to boil rice. Just that idea of knowing how to get rice to perfect consistency was a big issue with my dad. So he made me like his designated rice guy. Like nobody boil rice for me in this house except him. Cause it was like everybody else's rice is, is too soft. It's too mushy, it's too hard. Like he thought like I got the perfect consistency. So I was like his rice boiler. Like if he wanted rice, it was like, he would tell my mom like, yeah, you know, make the stew, make anything, but let him boil the rice. So I think it was just those compliments that kept giving me that little passion there that kept building this life. So I got to a point where I felt like, you know what, I really want to learn more recipes. So I had this thing in my head where I would always say to myself, like, you know what, when I climb this career ladder and I get to wherever it is that I want to get to and I make my money, I said to myself, like, I'm going to build this kitchen. Or I'm going to get this amazing house with this amazing kitchen. And when I retire... I'm just going to cook. And that was literally the idea at the time. That was my plan. Like in 40 to 50 years from now, when I retire, I'm just going to cook and learn recipes. And that's what I'll do when I retire. So I was like, the UK kitchens tend to be really small compared to like Canada and like the States. I think as a nation, we've just accepted that. Yeah, like it's fish and chips for us. We're not too concerned. Even in the houses, right? Even in the house. Like I've seen some kitchens that wardrobe space, I don't understand. And it's weird because some houses, the garden would be like four times the size of like the biggest room in the house. But then the kitchen is just like literally a cubicle. So because of that, I think that was why I always put it off because I just felt like this kitchen is too small. And I watch people I like online making recipes. They're making it in this amazing kitchen with so much cupboard space and there's like 50 pots and 50 pans and they're just sort of having a go at creating everything. And I just felt like, you know, our kitchen is tiny. We've got like half of our pots in the oven because there's no covered space. So that was one of the reasons why I always put it off. But then what happened was when I met my wife and we got a place, we found this place that had this decent sized kitchen with an island. And it was the first time I'd ever been in a house that I lived in that had that kitchen. Because I was then in that space, I just said to myself one day like, oh wow, like this is the type of kitchen I talk about when I think about retiring. But I've got this kitchen now. So I'm like, why not start learning recipes now? So I was working in Birmingham at the time. I live in Warsaw, West Midlands. And Birmingham was like half an hour away. So I was working in Birmingham at the time. And there's this market in Birmingham. So I was like, you know what? Like At that time, cooking for us was like a shared responsibility. Like whoever had the chance, like I would cook, my wife would cook. 
And I didn't used to like when she cooked stuff because I'd eat it and I'm like, this is nice. And she'd spend the next 20 minutes talking about, it's crap. You just lied to me. You lied to my face. We just cooked. We just shared the responsibility and blah, blah, blah. But at this place then I was like, okay. So I went to the market on my way back from work. I stopped off at the market. I was like, you know, what recipe have I seen that I'd really like to try? So there was a seafood pasta dish. So I thought, okay, you know what, let me make that. So I went there, picked up some squid, some mussels. And that was like my first time, you know, buying anything other than what Nigerians define as meat fish. That was me then as a Nigerian. It was meat fish. It was nothing as, you know, beef, pork. No, no, no. Everything was meat fish you know and we only just differentiated when it was in terms of chicken like okay this is meat this is chicken this is fish and that was all we did so it was my first time like going to the market and picking out things i don't usually eat at home or buy so it's like okay i picked up some squid picked up some muscle took up a couple of things so i went home and i made this pasta dish and if i recall i think my sister was around at the time she was visiting us at the time so my sister gets into the house. The missus gets into the house as well. So they see the pasta dish and they're like, oh, okay, well, where's this from? What's going on here? So I'm like, oh, you know, I tried out this new stuff. I just, you know, if you guys like it. They ate it and, you know, obviously the missus acts like, you know, I've just told her she won the lottery or something. So she's like, oh, wow, this is that, da, 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 just going off. And my sister's like, oh, I'm not a fan of seafood, but oh yeah, this is amazing. This is good. And then at the time, I was still a freshie on Instagram. My sister had convinced me to join. And I had my little, like, 120 followers who were, like, friends at the time. And, you know, back then in Instagram, where you post stuff, when it gets to a certain amount of likes, where you stop seeing the names and you just see the amount of likes. So I posted it on Instagram. And straight away, it went up to, like, I think 11 likes. And I could just see the likes. And that was the thing on Instagram. Then if you don't see the names and you go, and you see the number of likes, then it was like, yeah, we've made it, man. <laughs> so, so I posted it on Instagram and I posted it on Facebook as well. And people just sort of went off. You know, it was just the usual, you post what you've done today on social media. I wasn't doing it to make a statement. It was just, yeah, okay, this is what I did today. And then people were like, oh, wow. Like people who don't even communicate with me on social media at the time, who, you know, it was just a case of, yeah, I've seen you before. You've seen me before. I know your friend, you know my friend. So let's just add each other. So we just did, and but we never spoke. And then so it was like, everyone starts commenting like, oh, that looks good. And then there was this lady at the time. I can't remember whatever connection we had, but she was quite rich, like her family was rich. So she was like, oh my God, she was like, what you just made is the type of dish I love. I genuinely travel to countries to eat this. So I was like, oh, wow, like, oh, this is nice. Like, yeah, more compliments, guys. I'm feeling this. I'm feeling this. That guy got into my head straight away. Like the next day after work, I was at the market again. New recipe, gave to the missus to eat. She went over the top again. I think she was just going over the top because she was just trying to I think she probably thought like, if I just over compliment this guy, then he's just going to keep cooking every day and I can just live my life. So obviously she went over the top with the compliments, posted it on Facebook, posted it on Instagram. Same thing happened again. People are like, oh, wow. Like, I didn't know you could cook. Like my old housemates from uni at the time were like, man, we lived with you for how many years and we didn't get any of this, blah, blah, blah. The compliments came pouring in and I'm like, we can go for a third day, guys. So day number three, day number four, five, six, seven, it becomes like an everyday thing. I stop off at the market, I pick something, I make a new recipe. 
And at first it was just that compliment. It was just basking in that compliment, like people genuinely like, wow, these people are loving my food. Like it's crazy. So from then I keep doing it, I keep doing it. And then my ex at the time, who I got better at cooking, but hated it, messaged me and she was like, you've always been able to learn how to cook really quickly. And she was like, I think you should start a food blog. And I was like, nah, like to be honest, I just I just do this because I'm enjoying it. And I do it just because I'm loving the compliments that come on Instagram or Facebook. It's not something, because I've got my son, I've got work. I just, I don't know. It's a nice thing to do every evening, but I don't think I could make a hobby out of it. But she's like, oh, you should, you should, you should. So she bickers about it for a couple of days. Eventually I'm like, you know what, fine, cool. I think about it. I then start this little blog and I'm just posting and I'm just sort of creating stuff. Then I start taking on harder recipes. Now, not just your rice and pasta dishes, like we're talking about dishes that involve techniques. You know, we're talking about stewing, stuff like braising, learning how to make a brine, learning to understand like meat, you know, and that's where my understanding started to grow. Like not just overcooking meat, what meats, what temperature was good, stuff like that. And then with that, came the failure after failure after failure after failure as I took on harder dishes. But then obviously I kept trying and then when you succeed at it and it comes out the way it's supposed to be, it tastes the way it's supposed to taste, everyone likes it. And then it just, from then, it became about the food and no longer about the compliment. It just became about learning, about perfecting it, about making sure I could do it well. And then after a while, that's where the passion came from. And then I just, I did it every day, steady. And then on weekends, it was like 12 to 17 hours in the kitchen, nonstop doing, 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 doing. And then that was where the whole passion thing came from. And even then I didn't have it in my mind, like I want to become a chef. Like I was still sort of planning my career as like a financial economist. And I think at that point in time, I was working as a senior data analyst the whole chef thing came when I then had like other chefs messaging me and it started with like some of the big Nigerian chefs that you know, if you've heard about them, one of the ones I was close to at the time was Imotela. And then there's Chef Freggs as well in Nigeria. And he used to message me and be like, you're self-taught? And I'd be like, yeah, I'm self-taught. There's no way. And I'm like, yeah, I am. He'd be like, oh, amazing. He was like, and they used to tell me like, yo, yo, you should be a chef, be a chef, be a chef. I was like, I can't be a chef. I didn't go to school. I don't know, I'm just self-taught. Like, what do I even do? Like, so I just go out there and become a chef and then start offering what? What services? I don't, I don't know anything about it. But eventually, some lady called Tukumbo dragged me out and made me do my first supper club with her. And then that was where I just got a bit of experience. And I realized, actually, you know, I could do this. And then eventually... I got so comfortable with it and I just realized, actually, you know what, this is more than a passion now. I would like to do this for the rest of my life and then spend another eight, nine months just thinking about it until eventually I started to hate work and I just started to hate my work and I'm like, oh, I hate this place. I just, you know, I just want to cook now. I'm bored. I don't want to do this whole economics world bank thing. Then one day... The missus just said to me, like, if you're going to jump ship, jump ship. There's no point you in 10 years having this massive regret that I should have, I should have, I should have, I should have. So she just told me one day, like, we'll be fine. We'll find a way. We'll make it true. If you're going to jump ship, jump ship. And I jump shipped. And it was a really well-paying job. So imagine having to tell Nigerian parents that, hey, I'm leaving this senior role and this well-paid job to start from fresh 
And not even just start from fresh, but start as a chef. You wasted my money. <laughs> Funny enough, my dad handled it a whole lot better than my mom did, which is what I thought would be the reverse. I thought my mom would be the understanding person and like would be the person that had to talk to my dad like, oh, but she was like, you got a kid, you got a house, you got a family, you got goals, you got everything. You literally be starting from scratch, no money, no nothing, you know, bills to pay, all of that. Like what's going to happen? Whereas when I had like a hard for a conversation with my dad and I said, listen, I think those dreams we had were yours. This is mine. I'd like to do this. I know what I'm getting myself into. I know it's not easy. I'm not going to come here and be like, nah, I've got a passion, bro. I can do this. I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't know what I'm doing, but I know this is what I feel I should be doing. And he just said, hey, if you feel that's what you want, I'll support you all the way through. And I was like, oh, well, I didn't expect that from you. I expected that from mom. And I expected the way she's acting from you. But years later, that's where I am. That's really a journey. And I picked up some points as you were speaking because people sit down and feel like life is hard. I can't do this. And yada, yada. And you can just start from somewhere. I mean, coming from a typical African home, my parents, the same thing, you know, they've already planned your life. We're all girls in my home. So just all of us in the house, my sister is like, oh, this is what you're going to do. Yada, yada. I mean, I feel like he didn't tell me that, but it was like one of his aspirations. You work for a bank and you work for UN and, you know, you be great and all of that. But then I'm doing this, but I'm still in my finance area. But typical African home. And if you decide, I remember one of my sisters wanted to do music and my dad is like, social work, social work, social work. And she was like, no, music, music, music. She was go for social work classes and she was failing all her subjects and all of that. And it was crazy. And now she eventually, years after, my dad let her go do her music and she's loving what she's doing now. But it's like, you know, yeah, wasted so much money and you going to school and like, it's crazy. But, you know, I guess now parents having to come from where you are, where you've come from. And then now I'm sure that you would want to give your kids better. I have this kind of conversation with my friends. It's like, we want to do better with our kids. You know, do whatever you want to do. Just direct your path, help you in that area so that you can succeed. Because at the end of the day, it's what you want to do, not what I want you to do as a parent. Yeah. I think one thing that people need to know is that the beginning is not always going to be strong. You know, you just have to keep working at it because you're going to be failing a lot. <laughs> Even with me starting Barrier Breakers Corner, I am Ghanaian and I lived in Gambia, currently live in the US. But when I started in Gambia, it was more like a for youth and young adults coming together and then learning different things, how to break barriers and how to progress in life. Where do you want to be in the next five years and what you want to do? But now coming to social media, I never liked social media. I mean, posting pictures all the time was just crazy. But starting, it was like, I wasn't getting it right all the time, but I have to keep pushing. You're going to fail sometimes. You're going to post something and somebody will be like, hey, you made a mistake over there. And then you're like, oh my God, you know? So one needs to learn to just keep pushing. No matter how much you feel, you just have to keep pushing. And I like the fact that when your friends like that stew, that encourages you. If one person just encourages you, just take that on and keep moving. Before you realize, you get a lot of people coming along the way, which you had on your Instagram follow, you know, people coming to comment and liking what you do, which is really great. And now we have growth. And one thing I also liked is not living a life of regrets. I think that's something I'm learning in the past year is like, you don't want to go at the end of the year and say, had I known at the end of your life, you want to say, I did everything I wanted to do. Not that I didn't do some because I was scared or something like that. So at the end of the day, that's really, really important for people to know. And so how did you get to the cooking school? 
So the cooking school was a big, so eventually when I started to cook, I just made like basic dishes, like home cooking food. So the more books I read, the more videos I watched, the more documentaries on food that I watched, I found my way into like fine dining. I was completely blown away, like watching what these guys were doing with food and how they were identifying aspects and like of cooking or characteristics of certain ingredients that I just had no idea about. And I was like, oh my goodness, like this is a completely different way to see food. And then I would just watch these guys. I would watch these chefs, these top chefs nonstop. And I would watch chefs from like different backgrounds. And then it got better because as Netflix grew, Netflix brought in like more documentaries on food, gave these chefs a platform to showcase what they were doing down from their personal life how the inspiration comes from, how did they go off with this experiment, how they think about this. So that just exploded this thought in my head of, man, like, this is what I want to do. Like, this is amazing. I would like to be able to cook with these guys. And then that became a goal for me. Like, I want to cook with these type of chefs. I want to learn from these guys. But obviously, at that point in time, I didn't quit my job then. And leading even up to the point where I'd quit my job and I'd left my job, I was still just sort of doing my own stuff. I hadn't really fully grasped what it was to like be understanding food on that level so i used to then do my own experiments i would watch these guys i would imitate them i would try and then this is where i started to develop the skills of building my own recipes like creating my own dishes so i would take experiences from these documentaries i would go off i'd pick a dish i'll try i'd pick an ingredient i'd read about it i'd study it i'll do a few tests with it and i'll try stuff i'd give it to my wife to try You know, she, I think, is one of the leading forces that propelled my growth because she was extremely savage with her feedback. Like, if something was trash, she said it was trash. There was no pat on the back like, oh, I think you tried your best. It was, nah, this is trash. It's missing something. It's salty. I see what you tried to do here, but no. Like, those kind of feedback. And, you know, I just didn't take them to heart because that's just who we are as a couple, like, you know, some be honest. And then I would take that back and be like, all right, cool. Let me go try again. And I think that was really helpful for me. Another thing that was really helpful was there were certain dishes that she doesn't eat, like pork, stuff like that, and certain textures that she's not comfortable with, but she would still try it. The good thing with her is like, she's got a few senses that are quite heightened in terms of like smell. Our sense for smell is very heightened and sense for taste is very heightened. And those are the two things you need when it comes to food, to be honest. So because of that, like our palate was very defined. Like even when she's trying something for the first time, she can tell you like, nah, like it's missing something. Like she wouldn't know what it was, but she'd be like, it just doesn't sit right with me. So I decided to do that. And then because of that back and forth, trying, watching documentaries, learning, reading, trying, I then decided to craft my own way. Then I still used to throw up like the Nigerian dishes online because I I had two people at the time who found me, two bloggers at that time. One of them is this Nigerian lady that cooks called Food Ace. So she found my page one time and she was like, oh, I love what you're doing, da, da, da. And then she like announced me to her followers. She had like 200,000 followers at the time. And then I got this like barrage of followers who were like, were interested in what I was doing. And then there was another lady in the States called Nigerian Lazy Chef. So she was another person that used to like come on Instagram and like constantly shout me out. And she would message me and encourage me as well. Like, oh, what you're doing with Nigerian food is crazy. I can only count on one hand how many Nigerian chefs I know that are doing this. It was a big deal at the point because for me, I was just 
experimenting. I wanted to be like these expert chefs. Whereas like there were other Nigerian chefs like me at the time that had gone to school, had worked in these fine dining, you know, Michelin starred restaurants. So they had that experience. They had that thing. So there were these other chefs that were in bigger positions that were doing the same thing. But then here was me, this random guy in his house watching documentaries and doing as best as I could. And people were coming to tell me that I think you're on par with these guys. And then I think that was obviously confirmed when Chef Regs came into my Instagram. I was like, I went to school, like I spent like years doing this and I can definitely say what you're doing is amazing. So that then gave me that confidence, like, okay, keep trying. So never went to any kind of school, just watching documentaries. So at that point in time, no formal training, nothing, whatever. I was just watching, learning, reading, and I was just practicing everything myself. So eventually one day I got contacted out of the blue. A couple months after I quit my job now, and I was like, okay, we're just going to do supper clubs and we're just going to make enough money as we can with supper clubs for like the next year or two. What's a supper club? So a supper club is like a pop-up. It got the name from a supper club simply because if you think of like a book club, where people meet, they read books. So a supper club got the idea. At first, people called it a potluck, but then it stopped being called a potluck when it was just like one person inviting people and then cooking and then asking people to like eat and then maybe like selling tickets it then the name then changed it was called a supper club where all like these people need to try on it became a big thing with aspiring chefs or new chefs or chefs who like wanted to break away and start their own stuff it was their own way to sort of sort of like accumulate their own audience like oh, okay they put on three four courses whatever they sell tickets to their events people who know them or are interested in trying the food pay buy a ticket come around and it's like a dining experience it was like a pop-up so it's the same thing as a pop-up to be honest we just call it a supper club yeah so I was like, we'll do this, try and make enough money from this as we can to sustain us as a family. Whatever extra we have, we'll try and use it to build myself as a chef, like maybe do more stuff, be able to buy whatever we can. Like we had no plans at that point in time. It was just one step in front of the other first. So I got a phone call from this man. He's like, hey, I'm reaching out to people that are working with Nigerian food in the fine dining scene this way. And he was like, we found you and we would like to work with you if you can come in and help us as a consultant because they had another chef that they wanted to hire as the head chef so at that point in time they had reached out to all the big guys first so like chef Regs and the other guys they had reached out to them first but because of like distance or certain other things those guys had going like they couldn't find terms to work together and so for me at first i was amazed by the fact like wow like i'm literally the next person after these guys i was going to turn him down because i thought whoa this is too big of a project like i don't think i'm up to that standard yet i think at the moment i'm just sort of creating stuff like it's fine that you guys are amazed by what i create but I don't really put myself up there first. My wife was like, yeah, just do it, just go for it. Like, what's the worst that could happen? You know, at worst, they'll just be like, oh, you know, thank you for your service, you know? So I went down there and bear in mind, if you Google it now, the name of the restaurant, like he had told me everything, the name of the restaurant is called Akoko. So the restaurant right now, actually, it's doing an amazing job and it's such a wonderful place. When people ask me about it and they're like, oh, it's just going to be like another Ikoi. I'm always very quick because Nigerians didn't really enjoy Ikoi that much. They will tell you like, oh, it was an amazing place. The everything but atmosphere, but the food just wasn't. I'm like, it's just because you went in there with the preconception that you were going to recognize the flavors. And that was what true Nigerians off. Like they didn't recognize the flavors. They didn't know. And I'm like, you're tasting European food or Asian food or what culture that food has come from, but they've made it with Nigerian spices. 
Do you think Nigerians are not open to different foods? Nigerians are very open to different food. One of the biggest proofs I can give you to that is myself. When I started this, people would say, focus on the traditional food. Nigerians don't like fancy stuff. They don't like this new thing that you're doing. You're creating new stuff. Just focus on the ones they know, the jello fries, the this, the that. And for me, it put me down because I was so amazed by the fine dining industry. And I thought like, I don't want to do the normal foods. I don't want to be like, what's the difference between me and a caterer? Like no offense to caterers. Like I've had so many food from caterers that I've loved, but I thought to myself, like, I don't want to be that person. It's just that I've come across a couple of Nigerians because like the last time I was trying to, my pastor saw me from Nigeria. So I was trying to like do a Ghanaian pepper soup and it's like, huh, it's red. Why is it red? <laughs> or I say, have you tried like my friend? I'm like rice and okra stew and they're like, because in Gambia, they eat rice and okra. She says, like, even though she's more open-minded to food, but I feel like the most Nigerians that I've come across, it's so hard for them to be open-minded. Even like, oh, I don't eat a boiled rice. I prefer jasmine or broken rice, because in Gambia, we eat a lot of broken rice. They're like, yeah, what kind of rice is that? Like, so I'm just like, mm, they're not really open to food. No, trust me. Nigerians are the first to, like, shut something off. They're the first to be like, no, 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 no. Put it in front of them, let them eat it, they'll eat it. Yeah. After they eat it, go your way, they'll go their way. And then in the next couple of weeks, couple of days, they'll ring you up. Because a lot of chefs, especially junior chefs sometimes, like I even get a lot of big chefs sometimes that would email me and ask me for an advice on something. Maybe because they've seen it, it's something that they were just working on as a new experiment, but they've seen me do something with it on my page. So they'll probably message me to ask me a question. But a lot of the time I get messages from my younger chefs who are trying to take the same leap I did or the ones who already have or the ones who work somewhere but just want to ask me for something. And I'd say to them, like, listen, the first thing you're going to have to do is realize that you are the chef and not them. Ignore them, cook the food, give it to them. So he reached out to me. And the restaurant, like I said, now is up and running, amazing thing. And I absolutely love the fact that at one point I was supposed to be the head chef because there were some issues with the current head chef. So he came to, you know what? Here's an African guy who's slightly versed in this fine dining thing. Why don't we build this guy up and make him the head chef? So we're planning to open up in about nine months or so. So the aim was to build me up. I accepted the role like, okay, cool, no problem. And then I thought, okay, I'd ask now. Because if these guys really want to build me up, then I need certain things. If not, I wouldn't be able to live up to this role. So I spoke to the owner and I said, listen, can you sponsor me through culinary school? I don't mind if you take that money out of my first, second, third month wage when this restaurant is eventually open. But I don't have that money. Could you do this for me at the time? And he was like, yeah, sounds like an idea. Like, I don't mind. No problem. So he paid for me to go and have this couple of months in culinary school, get some experience, understand certain techniques, just get something. And then he also introduced me to some chefs that I do the respect today, especially one, Durga Mishra, who is in, I think, Sexy Fish, London, which is a very nice, prestigious restaurant in London. So he was sort of like the driving force. I worked with a couple other chefs, but he was, I think, the person who literally took my skills from where they were and exploded them. And he taught me everything and he was always moving. And so that was how I found my way into culinary school. From that opportunity there, 
he got me into the culinary industry, which was my first job also in the culinary industry. And then from there, I found my way around working in different restaurants, gaining experience as I could. And I worked for free. It was the hardest thing. It was one of the reasons why I never saw that project through and why I never became the head chef, because I had no experience of what the industry was actually like. And I went in there and the industry is grilling. Nobody tells you about that before you go in. Now, when I mean grilling, it's like you work 17 hours a day. I'm talking about 6, 8 a.m. starts to midnight, 1 a.m. finishes. And it's in like central London. It's taking me two hours to drive to work. Take me an hour and a half to drive back. You'd only get like three, four hours sleep before you have to wake up and do it the next day. And you do that for like six days a week. You only get like one day off. And if it's a really, really busy time, like Christmas or whatever, sometimes you don't get any days off. It's like seven days constant. You're just expected to kill yourself. That's how the industry is. You're expected to kill yourself so that you can get the most experience. And that's what's expected of a chef. Like I remember I personally, I worked 70 more free in London, one of the most expensive, if not the most expensive place in the UK. So it's costing me like 50 pounds every three days or so just to be driving to work and back. And then there's the cost of like congestion charge and stuff like that that like there was so much money leaving we're going through our savings so quickly and i wasn't making anything my wife was the only person making money i could have sort of sustaining the family at the time and I was just sustaining the family what I had in savings but these guys would tell you oh you know when I was your age I did the same thing I worked a year free blah 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 blah, blah. But obviously a lot of them don't understand I remember I had a heart to heart one of the older chefs a director of a restaurant and I remember having to be like chef I think you people don't really understand what the market is and I had to speak to him from an economic point of view and I was like I don't think you guys understand that the dynamics have changed the standard of living during your time and ours has changed I'm like I'll give you a perfect example chef and i was like during your time your dad could work and your mom could stay at home and take care of the kids and the family could still get enough money to eat have enough for all the kids to get what they need and your dad could still buy a house i'm like in this day and age it's not possible like you have to have dual income any household that doesn't have any dual income then whoever is just the sole income earner has to be earning a minimum of 45 and above if they even want to just have a decent life and let's not even bring kids into that probably stay off kids because once you bring kids into that then you need to at least earn like 15 grand more so i'm like you know there's so many things there car cost the standard of living food cost things have gone up but minimum wage hasn't so think about it you work seven to nine months for free and then when they eventually offer you a job they offer you a job at minimum wage and you still can't even survive on that pay and when you think about it a lot of people are working like 40 hours a week and they're getting like minimum wage and they're complaining and then when you think about chefs in this day and age how chefs in this day and age are working almost 100 hours a week and are still on either minimum wage or something slightly lower than what a minimum wage earner is getting or even free one of the chefs I worked with worked a year for free before he got a job and it's a standard thing like it's a standard thing working for free in the industry like if you go into a restaurant and you say hey I'm here I want to learn please give me a job I want to get some experience even now when you say stuff like oh give me please I want to work I don't mind starting from the bottom in your mind you're thinking bottom is I'll be the guy chopping onions downstairs but I'll be getting minimum wage they would just say to you this is the phrase they use okay 
you come here, start for a couple of weeks, let's see what you can do, and then we talk then. That phrase means I am going to work you hard for free for the next three to seven months. And then if I feel like you're hardworking and you really want this, then we might offer you a job. That's what that sentence means. And they have no guilt because they feel like I did this when I was your age. You should do it as well. It's just a standard thing. And fair enough, there are a lot of them that genuinely need extra staff but don't have the money for extra staff. So they exploit that. They might not mean to, but for them, it's like, I got to keep my business going. Yes, somebody begging for experience. Let me exploit that. Because I remember I worked for free and it wasn't no cutting onions. Like I worked full time, food stations, everything showing up. I even ran errands for the restaurant. Like when they couldn't get their deliveries for certain foods, I would be the one because I was one of the two staff members that had a car. So I would be the one to jump in my car and drive around London to go pick up a delivery that the delivery company can get to us on time. But the good thing is that me personally, I think it's slavery. I think it shouldn't be allowed. You know, I think it's just wrong. I think there should be some form of union set up for this to make sure that, you know, whoever is doing some sort of job, even if experience, is getting something at least. And which is why, like, the culinary industry has the highest staff turnovers. If you follow a lot of restaurants on their pages, just count the amount of times in a month you see any restaurant talk about now hiring staff needed. Because staff come in, after a month or two, they realize, I'd rather just work in McDonald's. What is this? Unnecessary stress. So the ones who can't keep up with it, just leave, just give up and just go. There are others who try, try, try. And after, like, six years or eight years working in that industry, and not going anywhere, just give up and just accept like this is my life. And then they just stay where they are and just work there or move to a different restaurant and do something. And then you do have two types of chefs. One like myself, where I had experience of how to run myself as an individual chef before going into that industry. Went into the industry, got loads more experience, came out and then decided, okay. I'll use this experience I've got to just keep running myself. And that's the only positive side to that entire ordeal is that you do get a massive amount of experience. Even if they don't put you in a role where you get experience, it's a place where just by watching, listening, learning from what you're doing, you can gain a ridiculous amount of experience. How did you come to change your mind? So I was working, I was gaining experience. We were still on track with the whole me leading the chef thing. And then at that point in time, I had a heart condition. I just recovered from it like a couple of months back. But the stress of the work and everything was showing up symptoms of the heart condition as well. And what that heart condition requires is that when you start to see the symptoms, like one of the easiest ways to just fix the problem was take a break. But the issue was I'm in an industry that doesn't take a break. I just kept pushing. And then with the pushing, what happened was I started to get sloppy like my heart condition started to affect my hand so certain times like I would be in the kitchen and like stuff would drop because I couldn't hold it but I wouldn't say anything to the head chef I would just apologize like oh my god I'm so sorry mistake I don't know what happened you know I was like getting dizzy forgetting stuff I didn't say anything because I thought like oh man if I say anything then they'll let me go if they let me go then I'm off this Akoko project nothing can happen and then eventually it just sort of backfired because my head 
chef would call me aside and would say, you know, you're getting sloppy. Sometimes you're late. Sometimes you don't talk. I don't know what's going on. You drop stuff. You're messing up stuff. What's going on? And then he then called my boss at the time, who was the head of the restaurant, to say like, hey, this guy you brought in here, something's going on with him. I don't know what it is, but something's going on with you guys. So he then called me. And so at that point, the day he called me, like, I was so upset. I thought the head chef went behind me. I just said to myself, now it's time to say the truth. So I just said to him like, hey, man, I'm sick. And I just didn't want to tell anybody because I was afraid if I take a break, you guys would drop me off this project. But then he said something to me that I took as confirmation that I was no longer part of the project. But I also took as a very, 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 very great advice. And he said, sometimes it's not about staying in the project. Sometimes it's just about leaving with what you were supposed to get from it. I took it as him saying to me, like, you're miles from where you were when I first met you. You're not where we need you to be to continue with you on this project, but you're where you need to be to make something out of the experience you've got. But then the good thing was I'd already built a little following and a name for myself at that point in time that when I came back thinking, oh, it's all over, what should I do? Should I get a job? How should I proceed? How should I blah, blah, blah. When I was just trying to figure out what my next steps would be, should I call my old job and ask them if they're still in need? Can I come back? And then out of the blue, like, I start getting calls like, hi, are you? I'm like, yeah. They're like, great. We'd like to hire you for such, 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 such. And then I became independent and did that for a couple of months. And it became even better for me because with the experience I now had, I was able to just sort of deliver a service people were looking for in that setting. I could then bring it straight to their houses or straight to whatever venue it is they wanted to. And people were amazed by that. And that was, I think, one of the plus sides from the entire charade that went on. What are some of the lessons you've learned throughout this journey? There are a couple and with different stages. So while I was in the industry, one of the lessons I would say I learned was if you're ever going to go in the culinary industry to work there as a chef or whatever, you need to understand what the industry requires of you. And before you go into that industry, you need to first ask yourself, am I going to be this keep your mouth shut, take the insults and just get the experience you came here to get type of person? If your answer is yes, by all means, go into that industry it has enough experience and it has enough that it can teach you if your answer is no that you can't take it then my advice is still go into the industry but gather as much as you can as quickly as you can and then leave and start your own stuff. If you feel like you can be independent from the get-go, you don't need anybody else, then by all means, don't waste your time going in the industry and try to do what you can do independently. Well, it's all about, part of my language, how much shit are you willing to take? If you're willing to take the shit for the long run, Go in there, like, you know, as much as I dislike that aspect of the industry, it is a beautiful place. Like the things you would learn in the right places will blow your mind. So that's one lesson, it's up to you. How much are you willing to take? If you can take it for the long run, go in there. Another thing I learned is the industry has two types of chefs. They're the chefs that go in there and they give their entire all to that industry. And in about 10 years, there's nothing really. They have like a wealth of knowledge and that's all they have to show for it. But they're probably still where they are, you know. And there are other chefs where, like myself, I like to call being in the right place at the right time. That's how chef life works. A lot of people will tell you, if you work hard, one day you will own your own restaurant, one day, no, 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 no. Listen, it is a case of 
determination plus luck. You need to try your best always because one day you might be in the right place at the right time. And for me, I can definitely say that's how it's worked for me. And that's how I've seen it in every other chef's life. Like when I see a chef tell me, I worked my ass off. I told them, when was your big break? Tell me a story about your big break. And then when they say that story, I say, so you were in the right place at the right time, chef. And they were like, yes, but I worked really hard. I'm like, yes, but that's my point. Like, I know you're a hardworking chef, but you were in the right place at the right time. What I mean is if you weren't in that place, chances are you could have still been where you were because I know chefs that I've worked with, super hardworking guys, extreme wealth of knowledge, but yet I'm in the same place they are and I'm just a new entry into the industry. And then when I say stuff like, oh, I did my own soccer club and I ran my own private chef service. And then they ask me, how much do you, used to make from that from one event i'm like it depends sometimes you could make like 500 pounds from an event and not even break even if you didn't market the event well and you didn't get people to come in there if you market it well you do a really great menu and you could sell out your event i'm like you could walk away with a thousand two thousand pounds in profit depending on your price you know and i just blew their mind like what you mean to tell me you can make in a day what I can make in a month and a half? And I'm like, yes. And then you would see these guys who just for the past two weeks, I felt they were better than me and that they were my teacher and that they were going to train me. You could see them immediately like become smaller and ask me the same question. They all eventually ask me, what are you doing here? Are you killing yourself with this if you're making that much outside? Like, what is the point of you being here? And I'm like, oh, I'm here for experience. And they're like, screw the experience. Go out there. Focus Focus on that. Build your own stuff. Why are you here? Like, man, if I knew that or if I was doing that before I came into this industry, that started to shock me. Like, these guys who I thought genuinely loved what they were doing, once they heard about the possibility of what they could make, they were independent and they built up a following. To them, it was like, oh my God. So that was another lesson I learned was that always work hard, always learn. Like, if you're in the industry, you need to learn everything. For, for instance, I've met a lot of chefs that are just pastry chefs. And I've met chefs that are, you know, just they cook proper food. They don't do desserts. They'll just tell you like, oh, I make food. I'm not dessert. I'm not blah, blah, blah. But starting off, I'm one guy. And when people want to try my services or hire me for something or they need me for some consultancy service, it's only a few times people call me and ask me, what type of chef are you? Are you a pastry chef? Are you? They Usually they'll just call and ask you what they need help with. And sometimes that call could come from a bakery. Sometimes it could call from a company doing snacks. Sometimes it could call from a company doing ready-made meals. Sometimes it could call from a fine dining company that needs help with a couple of ingredients they're working with and they need you to consult with them on it. So because of that, like I went in there and I just learned everything. I asked like, can I work with the pastry chef? I then said, oh, can I work with the line chefs? Uh, can I work with the guys in the ladder section so I can learn more about like making salads and stuff like can I work with the guys who are like cleaning up the kitchen and stuff so that I can learn more about the equipment they were using and stuff like that so I ended up just working in all aspects of the kitchen and gaining all that knowledge and then after I gained all of that if I ended up in the right place at the right time which has happened a lot for me and someone is like hi I need help with pastry so I could be like yeah sure what do you need I got you and then they're like really oh this this that and that and then I give them my opinion and input on it and they're like hmm okay 
let's talk. And then the contract is signed for a month and stuff. But in the industry, you get people who will say like, nah, I don't like pastry. I can't bake to save my life. I'm not a pastry chef. Or, oh, I love pastry. I don't want to do anything else. Whereas I feel like, you know, go in there, learn everything you can. One day you'll be in a place where somebody will come looking for something. And if you demonstrate, you know that thing. All of these chefs you even hear about, the big chefs, Ramsey, all of them, a lot of them, their big breaks came from being in the right place at the right time. Like that sous chef has probably been working there, grinding for eight years. And his big break has just come because somebody else can't afford 200,000 pounds and, you know, some shares. So that's another thing, like, I mean, or they just watch MasterChef and they look for who was the second runner up, who's the third runner up. That's why you see everybody from MasterChef after a couple of months, like even if they came to a place, second place, boom, they've opened their own restaurant. That's what investors do. They just go like, all right, let me look for that guy that did well on this show. And that's the one they call. That's why I say work hard, like get all the knowledge that you can get. You never know when your big break is going to come walking through the door. And I think the third advice I would give is it's borderline stupidity to not expect failure. And what I mean by failure, I mean like constant failure. I'm like in this industry to expect that you will start from zero and never see zero again is borderline stupidity. Like the amount of times you will see zero, the amount of times you will go from zero to making 600 pounds a day or a thousand pounds. And then one day you're just boom, zero, flat broke. You have no projects, you have nothing, no jobs, nothing. And you're thinking, what do I do from here? You'll see that a lot of times. So I think always expect failure and always plan ahead. And this is why I say people, even if you don't plan ahead and you fail, just take the next step. Um, I had a friend who was starting a marketing company. So obviously he reached out and he's just heard me talk about my experience in marketing. And that's just like marketing the business that I was running. And I was just that type of person. Like I mentioned in my second advice, where go and learn everything. And I just realized like, I don't have money for a pastry chef. So I need to learn to be a pastry chef. I don't have money to learn how to market this business. So based on to market this business, I need to learn how to do it. I don't have money to build a website. So I need to learn how to do it. So it was stuff like that. I used to just go in there and learn everything. Like I'd learn from the chefs. I learned from the manager of the restaurant. Like how are you managing the front of the house? How do you know what staff to hire? How do you know how to put them on rotors? How do you know how to switch the tables? What tables to get? What chairs to order? How are you guys able to like, how are you following your, like what system and software are using to monitor expenses? So I used to follow all of that. So obviously because I was good at that, then my friend offered me a role in a company which I took and then became creative director of the marketing company as well so I did that and then after a while the food thing started to creep up because I just went back to my mentality again of okay for like the fifth time now I'm at point zero again so what do I do same thing we did at point zero cook food upload it and tell people what you're working on and I did that and eventually people would then ring up again and blah blah blah, blah. and then <laughs> the COVID situation got worse so eventually I was like I am going to shut down as a chef for the next five to six months until I see what's going on so that I'm not investing money anywhere. And then eventually behind the scenes, people started to reach out, companies started to offer jobs because companies had to find ways to grow. And then I started getting hired for like odd jobs here and there. And it was with that I started to sort of build myself back up. So at the moment right now, I do like private work for private companies as well as the marketing team. And then I've had some offers come in. But in the meantime, I'm just like, I don't want to accept anything just yet because I don't know where the market is going to go. Your company could crash tomorrow because the UK is just reopening. We have a reopening plan leading into April. So for me, I feel like 
once I get to that 12th of April and I see what things are like, because the government has said, based on how it goes up until that point, we would know if, yeah, let's open up the country back or we would know if, no, you people aren't respecting what we introduced, shut everything down again. So that's why, like, right now, I have companies I work with and I work for, but I'm like, I'm not committing to anybody. I'm like, I'll just wait and see. Then once I know what it's like, then I'll come back up again in full bloom and be like, yeah, okay, let's jump on projects again and start working on stuff. But that would be my advice. My three advice would be know what it is you want from the industry and how much shit you can take to get it. Second thing would be if you do go into the industry, do everything. Don't say I'm a this, I'm a that. Do everything, work really hard. And then my third advice would be expect failure all the time. It can crash at any time. The restaurant you're working for could go bust tomorrow. And I've been, they would never tell you like, hey guys, we're losing money. They would always fight to keep themselves afloat. So they could just realize tomorrow that, you know what, we can't do it anymore. And they could just come up and be like, hey, you're out of a job. Sorry, we can't pay you anymore. We can't afford to. Or whatever project you're in, they could just be like, we don't have any money anymore for this project. We're scrapping it, you know? Or something like COVID could happen and people would just stop coming to your restaurant or your place or anything so it's like expect failure at all times if not for planning sake for mental health sake so that you can think right now i have a different mentality because i expect it all the time when something bad happens i just sit and go okay this is how i'm just gonna move now so those would be my top three advices to give people that is absolutely true. And I've gotten a lot from what you've said, being disciplined, learning, knowing when to leave, being at the right place at the right time. Those are great nuggets that people need to get. Like, you know, I think those are place that you were talking. I was like, in my mind, I was like, preparation meets opportunity. You need to be prepared so much that when opportunity comes, you need to know when that is a great opportunity and you walk into it so that you're going higher and not just regressing or just being stagnant. So one last question. One of the reasons why I started the podcast is I always wanted to have conversations with people that I wish that I had when I was younger. So for you, what conversation do you wish you had had when you were younger that you feel like would have helped you so much in life? One conversation. And that would have been with my dad. And the reason why was because he was brought up in a culture, like my dad has a very modern mindset, but he's a man that's stuck in a traditional setting. So what I mean by having a conversation with him is I felt like if I'd sat down with him and just told him straight that, that this is your dream, not mine. And if you make me do this, I want you to know now that for the rest of my life, I won't be happy. And you would always have that in for the rest of your life, in your heart, in your mind, that you are the cause of your son's unhappiness. So I didn't have that conversation earlier enough. I mean, my dad and I are so close now. He's so close with his kids now. When we were younger, we weren't. It was more of like the normal parental relationship. Dad said, do this, then do it. Don't complain. Just do what you can. You have your occasional laughs with dad. And then it's like, hey, 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 we've had our laughs. You know, you sometimes feel like that's still the joke, laugh at the joke because he's dad, those type of things. Whereas we have like a very progressive relationship now as kids with our parents. And it's simply because we're adults. My sisters and I did this thing where at one point in our lives, we just full on challenged my parents. Like it wasn't like, oh, I don't really feel like we just full on went like, no, I'm tired. I'm not doing this. No, I'm not listening to you. That's your opinion. I'm not going to tell me this, you know, and it was very shocking for my parents at first but then eventually they've come around to understand like my kids are adults right now and the old age Nigerian tradition of I'm the parent no matter what and still speaking over their lives for whatever until I die just doesn't work anymore so I should have had that conversation with him at a younger age because one of the reasons why I took this creative marketing job 
at my friend's company because he said, you're literally one of the best chefs I've ever known. And I've been to a few places of travel with Ed, but he was like, you're my favorite chef. And I was like, the reason why you are is because there's an approach you take to creating something that I don't see anywhere else. And then he said to me, he was like, I don't think you're a great chef. And I was like, this compliment is a bit weird. He was like, no, listen to me. I don't think you're a great chef. I think you are a great creative in general. And I think food was one of the many things that you just stumbled upon. I think any other creative aspect or any other creative field, I feel like if you were immersed in it, you would excel in that field. And then it took me a while, but eventually I figured out what you meant because he put me in this creative directive role. And the more I read, the more I studied, the more I did my research, the more I learned about it, the better I became at it. And to this day, he tells me, you've proven my point. Like you're a great creative. You're not just one thing. Like if something needs creativity, you're good at thinking about it and creating it. So when I was growing up, there were so many things I wanted to do. At one point, I wanted to do music because I saw a friend of mine working on, a, on on Fruity Loops, which was like making up at the time. And I was learning about it and I was understanding it. And I didn't want to be a beat maker or a producer, but I just wanted to work in music because I started to read about like songwriters. I started to understand the way songs were written, created, melodies, understanding that. At another point, it was art. I started to draw, I started to paint. At another point, it was fashion. And I remember I did a fashion project and I submitted it to a fashion school and they gave me a scholarship. But my dad was like, no, 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 it can't be fashion and anything. But the thing is, I just thought like, this guy doesn't want me to do this. He's planned my life. You know, it was years later, he felt like I didn't know what I wanted to do. So he was like, that was the only reason why I used to shut your projects down because that was what I thought when I spoke to your mother, that was how he felt. He was like, I didn't understand these passions. You never spoke like at one point I hated my dad for it and I was like oh he's just put me through this unnecessary stress and my shock when he found out and he was so distraught he was so sad about it like why didn't you speak to me why didn't you say something why didn't you tell me and I was like oh you know because mom used to say because my mom would tell me oh just do what your dad wants you know your dad just wants for you and then she would tell my dad the same thing like oh you know and then my mom was doing that traditional thing of worry, I'll make him listen. And his family used to do the same thing where they'll tell him like, man, I see what your son is doing. You know, I, you know, he's going to be a great boy like you. All the schools I went to weren't based on where I wanted to go and where he wanted me to go. It was where other people were telling him like, yeah, put your son in this and he's going to do as well as you did. So he never spoke to me. Back then, I didn't muster the courage to speak up to him and express myself to him as well. So because of that, I feel like there are a lot of opportunities in my life that I missed out on that could have been really great because I remember even when I got the scholarship for the fashion school in Vancouver I also was going to go to that school on recommendation from a local fashion designer that I had interned with and worked with who wrote a letter to the school to say listen the way this guy thinks when I teach him stuff is completely different it's unique and I think properly trained like this guy could do stuff but like I lost that aspect of my life simply because it was turned down and I switched it off as well and I said okay forget it but then here's what happened everything that I was turned down. When I was in uni, I found a producer and I said, you know what? I want to make songs. They might never go anywhere. I might never do anything, but I'm going to write songs. I'm going to record them. And we did that for a while. I had a producer who took me around with some other artists while they were singing. I got on stage. I performed with them. I made music. It never went anywhere. I mean, some of the songs were crap. I listened to them sometimes and I laughed. Some of them were good. I had somebody reach out to me. They found one on YouTube. I was like, oh my God. I was like, I didn't know that was cool. And they were like, that was quite nice. And like, they were like, yo, we prop up like production 
production and everything. Like, I think this could be a good song. But I was like, nah, that part of my life is gone. I'm just happy that I was able to do it. And then the next thing was fashion. I started a clothing line. So for a few years, I ran a clothing line. I designed my own items. Then that was where the fashion and the art came back. I combined those two and started a clothing line. And for a few years, that worked absolutely well until I eventually decided to stop after I had my first child and then went back into office work. But then that regret was gone because I felt so accomplished. Like, I did that and I'm happy I did it. And the food thing was the same way. I told myself, we're going to do this. Well, my wife told me, just go for it. Just do it so you have no regrets. So for me, that conversation, learning on later in life that I should have had that conversation changed my entire mind. But now the way I am is if I genuinely feel like I want to do this, I just do it. I always have that conversation with people. I need to have to regardless, no matter what. Like if I need to tell someone something now, I tell them and it's really helped my relationship and it helped my relationship more because even though I was very open and understanding, my wife was able to show me that I was still slightly closed, but she was very straightforward. Like, you know, if something had to be said, she said it. There was no around the bush. There was no beating. If there was an issue we need, we had to talk about it. She never gave me that option of, I'm upset with you, so I'm not going to talk to you for the next two hours. It was like, if you're upset, you are going to talk to me about it now. You're going to tell me why you're upset. We're going to figure out what the issue is and we're going to solve it. And then we're going to move on from this. So she never gave me that opportunity. And that coupled with realizing my mistake when I was younger changed everything for me. So at this point in time, I have no regrets, but I would say I should have had that conversation sooner because I felt like I would have had more opportunities that you know, whether they failed or they succeeded, I would have just experienced life more. So for me, that's the one conversation I would say I should have had. And I don't mean it in the sense where I think I'm telling everybody like, yeah, go home to speak to your parents. <laughs> no. I'm like, for some people, it might be their parents. For a lot of Africans, I find it might be like, you need to speak to your parents. You know, you just always need to think to yourself, like one of the biggest advice I think I've ever been given was when I heard someone say, listen, the aim isn't to die successful. The aim is to die happy. And I was like, ah, he was like, yeah, he's like, the aim is to die happy. He was like, what will your success speak of when you're about to go? If you have all the money in the world, what would you say? You know, if you ended up climbing to that top of the ladder that you wanted to be at, the question is, were you happy? Some people are successful and are very happy with their success, which is good. But some people are very successful and are just like, oh, I shouldn't be. So for me, I remember like my wife and I, we've quit like three or four jobs. If she has a problem with a job, I'm like, try your best, try your hardest, do everything, grind, speak to the person. Someone gave you an issue, speak to them, speak to the head, organize a meeting, speak to the person, you know, bring solutions, boom. Once we go through all of that, once I'm like, have you done everything in your absolute possible best? She's like, yes, I have. And the issue still persists? Yes, it does. Next thing I say is quit the job. <laughs> and I told her one day, like, listen, I'd rather you be happy. I've said this to her. She said it to me. I'm like, I would, listen, I would work three McDonald's job to provide for this family than to see you come back to this house every day crying and stressed. Like, I would rather we as a family go fry burgers somewhere than for us to be very depressed coming back. And that's the mentality we've always had. Address something that is hindering your happiness. That is the conversation you need to have. Anything that is hindering you being happy, address that straight away. And always remember, the aim is to die happy and not successful. 
that's a deep one. I feel like that's something I've been like thinking about and just going through the motions this past couple of months. And I'm like, when you said that, it just resonated with me so much. I'm like, the most important thing is to die happy. And even if you're successful, you want to be happy at the end of the day. At the end of the day, at the end of your life, you want to think about it and say, I did everything I wanted to do and I'm happy. You leave this world without any regrets. And that's the most important thing. Just to quickly emphasize more on that point is like, when I was younger, we used to get asked like, what do you want to do? What do you want to be? And, you know, in an African home, you say something like, oh, I want to be a comedian. And at that point in time, your parents felt like, you might as well kill yourself right now. Because since you want to kill yourself and kill me, let's just, you know, get a knife and let's just kill ourselves right now. But the industry has completely changed. Bloggers are making millions. Musicians are making billions. You know, anybody anywhere is famous on the internet for anything. You know, with that mentality, understand Understanding that happiness is anywhere or doing anything. When I ask my son, what do you want to be in life? His response is, I want to be a YouTuber. And when he says that to me, I think about all the experiences I had in life. I think about the conversation with my dad that I felt like I should have had earlier I never had. I think about everything that is going on in society and everything. And after I think about everything, I look at him and I say, listen, if you want to be a YouTuber in this life, you make sure you become the damn best YouTuber this world has ever seen. My son walks around the house sometimes talking like he's a YouTuber. Like he'll be playing games and he'll be like, oh my God, guys, did you just see that? That was so amazing. I couldn't believe And I have to remind him sometimes, like, there is nobody watching you. You are the only person in this room right now. Who are you talking to? But he wants to. And the reason for that and why that is good is because he gets the gift he gets. Sometimes I get completely blown away by them because he would go somewhere and he would act in a certain way as a YouTuber would. And whoever is there is just so impressed with what he's done. I feel like I'm going to gain that game or that thing he talking about and it's that sudden realization and that reminds me like he has nothing hindering his happiness at the moment so because of that he's very very honest to people he just speaks his mind to them he tells them what needs to be said he says what needs to be and because of that people respect him for it even though he's just a six-year-old they give him the respect that he deserves because of that because he's not going around like we did as kids just telling everybody good evening sir good afternoon sir and then confining ourselves and just waiting for others to follow he speaks his mind and because of that they respect him and that's one thing i also wanted to emphasize that if you choose a path and you place your happiness first and you decide to go for it the universe will open a way for you to get to it and that's one thing i mean like put your happiness first understand what you need to do sometimes it might be you that needs to change to make sure you get but do what it needs to do so that to make you happy and that will just work its way out for you amazing amazing conversation thank you so much for doing this with me and also thanks to your supportive wife for who has also been there with you through thick and thin and just helping and guiding i mean thanks to supportive partners everywhere in the world you know being there for each other and making the relationship work whilst both of you are trying to you know hustle and bustle together to make it work and be successful so i'm so grateful for that thank you so much thank you thank you thank you no problem. Thank you very much for having me. And for anybody else who might end up listening to this podcast, I usually hear that a lot when somebody gets in touch with me and they're like, oh, I have to think before I make this phone call. And like, anybody who listens to this, like ring me for anything. My wife will tell you I'm the worst person at saying no. Oh, <laughs> thank you. No problem. Thank you again. Thank you for listening to the Barrier Breakers Corner podcast. If you liked what you heard, please give us a five-star review and subscribe to the show wherever you listen to your podcast. Also, share with those you think can benefit from this information. Please email all questions 
suggestions, and compliments to the BB Corner Podcast at gmail.com. The Barrier Breakers Corner Podcast is produced by the Podcast Laundry Production Company and executive produced by Joyce Donkor. The podcast music was written by Chidi Omenihu and produced by Andy Official in the Gambia, West Africa. Cause they can't